the two Johnnies. It's Tuesday, the 25th of October, and this is Game On. Former Test rugby referee Owen Doyle on his new member and making sense of the sanctions for foul play. Over they go, Connacht, but there might be an intervention from the TMO here. Uh, Baniaki has involvement and is a clean out there. A shoulder into the head. You think to yourself, what else can he, what else can he do? How low can he go? But it is shoulder to the head. Uh, it could be much more sanctions on tonight because of the extremity of Alan Cawley joins us to chat about Shamrock Rovers' 20th league title victory and Mark Langdon will be on the phone to preview match day five in the Champions League for 16 teams tonight where Chelsea are already in action in Austria versus Salzburg where it's scoreless after 17 minutes. We've had uh, three, I would say, three really tough matches. Uh, first game against Salzburg was a, was a tough game against a top opponent and obviously two wins against Milan have helped us help the situation for us but um, we expect another game we're not celebrating we need, we need more points so we expect a, a really tough game looking forward to it Plus we've column keys on a busy news day for GA fans if you want to get in touch you can text us on 51552 or tweet at Game On 2FM Game On on 2FM Welcome along, Alan Cawley is straight across from me here in this studio and anyone that follows Alan on social media knows that he likes to go on a bit of a tour when he's away and you were over in QPR on Saturday, Alan? Yeah, the latest in the season's tour, Maria, I was over uh, watching QPR, top of the championship, taking in a game with the little man and uh, we had a great weekend, Jad played Wigan and it was a really good game because there was obviously lots of Irish interest as well. Mm-hmm. Young Sinclair Armstrong was playing up front for QPR. A lot of folks on him at the moment. And uh, he played really well. James McLean was playing for Wigan. Will Keane. So, um, yeah, there was Irish interest. But the game itself was very good. And the fact that there was a lot of talk around Mickey B last week turning down mm-hmm. the Wolves job. And I think the fans, for the first time, it was it was lovely to see because nowadays when managers get linked at lower league clubs to maybe a Premier League club they all jump at the chance and who would blame them to be fair when you think of the financial reward that's on offer now and the opportunity to go and manage in the Premier League and try and better yourself but I thought it was lovely last week Mickey Beale who has just gone in a QPR and spoke in a brilliant interview about the fact that when he came in they were the first club to give him his managerial opportunity he was going around to sign players trying to get, take them on a journey with them in terms of what they're trying to do and what he's trying to achieve so he says how could I be the first one to jump when the first opportunity arose that I had to stick around and I thought it was brilliant and the fans really responded to that because uh, there was a fabulous atmosphere they won as well 2-1 Loftus Road is a lovely little ground nice part of London as well so all in all it was a good week Emery so all the promotion and convincing that you tried to give me about going to a League of Ireland game Rovers are playing Derry last night and you're in London watching QPR well, I have to look for the for the football knowledge, Ruby. You have to spread it around, you know. So I was on Irish Watch with Young Sinclair Armstrong. So the next time you ask me about Stephen Kenny's squad and what's happening, all I'll be able to fill you in. And having seen him in the flesh. I think the young fella to be fair um, he didn't look out of place at that level he's obviously very very raw has a lot to learn but he's only starting out in his journey in terms of playing at that professional level he got taken off at half time which I was surprised with because he was doing really well but I think the manager does like him and as I said you'll be hearing plenty about him going forward yeah, for anyone that isn't aware of who Sinclair Armstrong is, he came through the Shamrock Rovers system and, and ended up in QPR and he just got his first start um, last week and gave a brilliant interview afterwards mm. where um, you could just see that he, he hadn't been media trained. He was just a young lad who something amazing was after happening to him. He even said that he wasn't aware that he was going to be starting until they called out his name in the team sheet and he absolutely couldn't believe it. But you could just see... 
this youthful enthusiasm in him and you just wish him well and hope that it, it goes um, it goes the way that he wants it to as well yeah we were speaking to him afterwards and um, we got a photo young fella got a photo with him as well so it was uh, brilliant yeah as, exactly as you said Marie he just looks like a young lad who's getting his opportunity absolutely relishing it but he has that youthful exuberance and it's almost pure joy on his face that, that I suppose the ruthless nature of professional football hasn't probably kicked in with him yet and there'll be many setbacks <laughs> along the way but certainly at the moment he's in a good place in a good club with a good manager who were on the up as well Loftus Road looked absolutely brilliant and there's something nice about that like obviously we look at the Premier League now and there's so much money involved and there's it's almost like that connection with the fans is taken away and, and there's a real disconnect when you go to grounds we were in Spurs last year and a fantastic stadium amazing place to go and visit but you don't really get that vibe or that feel as though it's real it's almost false when you're looking at it, mm-hmm. especially I had the little lad with me but you're looking at Loftus Road and a smaller ground neat and tidy little ground intimate atmosphere and you still get that feeling like the players and the fans are as one whereas I don't think you get that anymore at the Premier League obviously we all watch the Premier League still but I just think there's something more kind of uh, real about the championship and stuff Did you get a marketing contract from QPR or something? (laughs) We spoke to Stephen Kelly about Mickey Beale last night just in Mm. the context of Stephen Gerrard departing Aston Villa and whether or not uh, he was the brains behind what Stephen Gerrard had done in the past what kind of footballer QPR playing and do you think that he was the one that was maybe making Gerard out to be the or putting Gerard in that position of being regarded as a great manager yeah I can see why totally Marie, because you look at the job he's done since he's gone in a QPR um, and he was highly regarded as a coach hence him getting the job in the first place but you look at the way to play and it's real exciting um, attractive brand of football to play with a little number 10 Elias Cheer another lad to watch out for he's absolutely fantastic he was the best player on the pitch but I think to be fair to Wigan as well they came back into it in the second half James McLean who still carved out a, a brilliant career for himself performing well performing uh, at a good level he played well and I think Wigan probably deserves something from the game but in terms of QPR and Mickey Beale they're definitely on the way up and I think he's playing into the whole underdog card nobody expected them to be where they are right now at this moment in time and they're just kind of going along with that on that wave on a crest of a wave and they're really enjoying it You've yeah well Chelsea have just scored against Salzburg Kovacic top left hand corner with his left foot I think to put them 1-0 up in the Champions League away in Austria You'd make a great old football commentator. Won't I keep you on that for the night? He loves the football, doesn't he? He absolutely loves it there. Yeah, he doesn't doesn't look at me then. He just but just you were you were just you were saying a while ago, and I was listening to you, Marie. And you've a, one of your lads I know is in the Shamrock Rovers program. I know there's a young lad in the village here in Calverstown. Oshin Early's in it. And you look at Shamrock Rovers, 20th league title, third in a row. They're miles ahead, Alan, with their U program compared to the other teams in the League of Ireland. Did the rest have to try and catch up there to get the kids coming through? Yeah, I think to be fair and, and no one would take that away from them, Ruby, in terms of what they're doing off the pitch and they were lucky enough, I suppose, or well, whether it was luck or not, but they had an investor that was willing to obviously invest heavily in the outside of things with Roadstone and they have that academy and the facilities and that's so important and that's something when you look at facilities at first team level in the League of Ireland, we're crying out for them and better facilities and that's been an ongoing argument for years and years. But for Shamrock Rovers who have the stadium in place, but also to have the facilities at an underage level um, and 
and that brilliant facility at Roadstone where they can cater for all these teams, cater for lads, training at a, on a decent surface, decent pitches every week with good coaches. They are definitely uh, ahead of the rest at the moment. And I suppose winning the league only backs that up. The financial reward that will come again with that in terms of going into Europe again next year, uh, it's only going to enhance them even further. And it is about all the other teams trying to play catch-up. But I think with Derry's investment at the moment, they're certainly getting closer on a first-team level, but they've a bit to go yet in terms of the underage side of things. Okay, we will be hearing from Stephen Bradley, the Shamrock Rovers head coach, in a little while. But first, we are going to turn our attention to Gaelic Games. Column Keys of the Independent is standing by to talk about all of the news that has happened over the last 24 hours. And there has been plenty of it, but most of it centres around the television rights. And it was announced a little bit earlier that Orti have expanded their rights for Gaelic Games for the next five years. There's going to be more live games and a new second highlights programme as part of that deal. Column, it's good news for Orti. Is it good news for viewers? Uh, remains to be seen, Marie. Obviously, uh, not good news for those who have uh, Sky Sports subscriptions and watch a lot of sport. And in that package is obviously GA across the summer, and it had found its own niche despite the uh, difficult start, shall we say, it had it back in 2014 uh, when uh, the championship games were put behind the paywall for the first time. And I would have thought that the relationship had was strong. I would have thought it had settled down, but clearly, clearly, there's been a, a cooling, a cooling off between them. And the GA are confident enough in their own GA Go model that this can, this can work, and this can fill the void. And therefore, Sky and the GA parted company, and obviously RTE and GA Go will be picking up a lot of the slack there with the BBC, who will be extending the uh, in what, what I think is a very significant development. Uh, the BBC network right across the UK will be carrying at least one of the All-Ireland finals, probably two, perhaps on BBC two, perhaps it will go to Red Button, but it will also be on the iPlayer, so that's hugely significant. It would, it would bring a massive audience, a massive audience into, uh, for an All-Ireland final um, that previously wasn't there because that was uh, uh, the origin of the Sky deal, at least the message J.A. were putting out in 2014 is that they wanted to bring the games to an international audience and Sky facilitated that. But obviously, when I was behind this paywall subscription, not too many in England got to see it. This would be different for all Ireland finals. So that's a big development. Just wonder whether the GA Go model, how quickly people will adapt to it. Uh, and they will still be paying to watch certain games. That, that's for sure. That's, that's the only way the model can work and can be sustainable. The GA Go model will be hugely reliant on broadband. I suppose it'll be interesting to see if the GA, who can get many things done, can get more people broadband, Colm. Well, that's it, Ruby. And obviously, uh, the argument was before that people in rural areas did not get to see Sky. Maybe older people in rural areas did not, could, would not have access to Sky. And it remains to be seen whether they will have access uh, to streaming GA Go too. Presumably, presumably more will. Obviously, there is there is a greater footprint for broadband everywhere in Ireland. How good it is remains to be seen, and what the quality of that will be. But I think some good games will have to go behind the GA Go paywall. Obviously, it'll be a subscription, five euro, seven euro. Maybe it goes up to ten euro for all Ireland quarterfinals. I'm not sure what the payment structure will be, but they will have to put some good games uh, behind that paywall to make it to make it work. And to fill the financial void that's clearly going to be there uh, with with Sky's departure, because between the media rights, between all the all the all the broadcast partners, you look at the annual accounts every year, 
Um, Pre-COVID, it was coming in at around 10 or 11 million for media rights. So that's ballpark figure. You never know exactly what it is. But that's the ballpark figure per year. Multiply that by five, and you, you roughly have what the media rights uh, is worth to the GA. It's the jewel in the crown. So clearly, there's a, there's a gap there to fill. I presume GA Go and people subscribing to it will be the, the, the main way to, for that to be filled. You'd think as well, Colm, though, they, with everything that's gone on in the last few years, that they've really tested the water for the appetite there. They'd have a really good handle on what people are watching and um, all around the country even. My dad was up visiting yesterday and he was telling me he watched an intermediate match and he paid a tenner for it and he was happy enough with it. But the flip side of that is, and, and Ruby pointed out as well, I had uh, my four nephews come up one night and they said to me, uh, when's the midweek movie on? And I was like, they talking about the midweek movie they've no broadband so they don't watch Netflix they don't stream stuff on YouTube they actually watch the the midweek movie so um, yeah there is going to be a, a huge amount of that as well and, and look that was just four little boys who who love GAA um, I'm going to yeah. move on to the to the highlight show though um, Colm and there's going to be a second one on RTE which is quite an interesting one and it has raised a lot of debate as to when is the best time to have this and I don't know if anyone has come up with the right answer for that yet yeah, the highlight show is interesting. It's obviously been moved that it's that it's needed, and I think those who have uh, promoted that prospect most are those that work on the Sunday game. I would imagine because they are so stretched to uh, package and analyse all the games on particular weekends. And if you look at next year, with the when the round robin is on in in full flow in June, the round robin Sam Maguire and the round robin Tajin Cup, uh, and also the concluding stages of the hurling round robin. It's quite feasible that there would be 21, 22 games on big enough games, obviously most of them pretty big games, on a particular weekend. Now, how do you package all that into one, two hour, even at one stage, a Sunday game was going up to two and a half hours. How do you package all of that uh, into, into that into that window? You can't. So, TG Carr, it seems, will still have the highlights uh package on a Monday night they still show an hour of highlights on a Monday night that covers everything from club games to under 20 minor during the summer I would see a niche for a Saturday night Saturday game perhaps I know production wise it would be very very difficult to turn it around especially a 7 o'clock game but chances are there will be earlier games that will that will feature and focus on that and if the manpower are there and the production values are there and all of that I would say a Saturday because it says in the in the in the statement today it says a highlights package, and Saturday night would really alleviate uh, a lot of the stress and strain that, that 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 the staff are clearly feeling on a on a Sunday night, and also that the that the viewers miss out on they miss out on their team. Everybody, just human nature. Everybody wants to see at least a little bit of their county, or you know, two or three minutes or whatever it is, and to to hear the analysts talking about them and going through it. So so I think. A Saturday night program would would obviously alleviate that. Perhaps it's going to be for pushed back further into a midweek. But I think, as regards highlights, highlights are gone almost on a Monday night, and it's everything is looking forward to the to the following weekend, and that becomes a preview show. So that's an interesting development, but a good development too for the coverage. Colin, that's I was just going to go to. Like, does it not become Friday night highlight into preview? What you did wrong? How you do it right this week? Yeah, that's quite possible too. But uh, obviously, Ruby, the, the the real strain is at the weekends when those when that mass amount of games are there, and everybody's waiting to see, waiting to see will their county feature, 
and it passes by the blink of an eye on a Sunday night. So if you have eight or ten games, and you will have that during the round robin, this the round robin structure will have to go from two, four, six into seven o'clock overlapping on a Saturday. That's the way the fixtures are going to have to spread out on these particularly busy weekends. And that's why a Saturday night highlight show would really alleviate pressure then. But obviously, there's also a market for, there is a market for a Thursday or Friday night highlights package with previews and potentially interviews as well in the build-up to that. So, yeah, an interesting development. It, it, just to see where that will, that will slot in. I, I just have a feeling it'll be at the weekend. Well, you're having a laugh here. Can you imagine the screaming from counties that don't appear on a Sunday night and they're left until Tuesday night? <laughs> well, that's it. Uh, and as I said, by Tuesday, by Tuesday, the weekend is gone. Mm. You know, people want to see no more than match of the day. Match of the day on a Saturday and then on a Sunday. Obviously, the games are played earlier in the Premier League most of the time, certainly certainly on a Sunday, so it's easier to turn things around and build proper analysis and coverage around that. Whereas some of the games, obviously, have the 7 o'clock slot on a Saturday night, Championship summer. Game isn't really over till quarter to nine, coming near nine o'clock. It's kind of hard to turn that game around and that's going to be the big game for a Saturday night programme that could start at 10. And would there be the audience there for it on a Saturday night in Ireland? That's one that would have to be tested out too. With the cost of living there might be? Possibly so. Possibly so, yeah. Maybe maybe it would work, certainly next summer. One thing's for sure though, you're never going to keep everybody happy. It's actually impossible, so people will find flaws in everything. Uh, let's move on to the still ongoing managerial merry-go-round. It's, uh, we're getting there with it, though. So Donegal have ratified Paddy Carr as their new manager with Aidan Rourke as the head coach. Um, it took a while to get there, and it was a little bit out of the blue, really, that it was uh, Paddy Carr, uh, just given the fact the he was Rory Kavanagh was in pole position for so long. Yeah, I think the expectation around Donegal, certainly before the county final, uh, uh, Rory was managing St. Unions, they lost, and obviously there was some controversy in that with the sending off of Shane O'Donnell, but they lost, and then the trail to Rory Kavanagh went cold, um, and Paddy Carr entered the equation. Now, Paddy Carr, uh, is his family is from Donegal. He grew up, I think, in Dublin. And he has lived in Meath, and interestingly enough, he's principal of one of the big schools in in Navan. And at the opposite end of the town is another school, uh, which Colin O'Rourke is principal in, and they're both leaving principalships to take up senior inter-county management jobs. It's quite a coincidence, but uh, Paddy has lived in Meath, but his connections are very much rooted in Donegal. He's a member of Fanad Gales, I see he's certainly a, a card-carrying member of Fanad Gales at the moment. And he's had he's twice applied for the Donegal job. He has managed Loud. He's managed a number of clubs. Uh, Kilmacud to an All-Ireland title uh, in the 2000s. I think 2009 he managed Kilmacud to an All-Ireland title. He's in association with Kilmacud Croke. So he has been around. And Aidan O'Rourke brings quite a degree of experience to. He's been Loud manager in his own right. And he's been assistant manager and coach to Kildare. With Kieran McGinney, he was with Kieran McGinney in uh, Armagh as well, and he was also with Down James McCartan. So they they bring quite exper- quite a degree of experience. They wouldn't have been the first choice. I think that's recognised. I think Rory Kavanagh uh, was was the choice until until he veered off course last week. So uh, yeah, that's 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 the pairing. Paddy has been involved for 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 quite a number of years. He's been around. Both of them have a lot of experience. 
It's quite an interesting time for managers, Colm, and, and just even the fact that the two Mead uh, principals are, are leaving jobs there to go in, into full-time management. When you look at the likes of Donegal and Roscommon and Monaghan, you know, jobs that should be really attractive, yet there aren't people lining up to take them. Is the landscape completely changing now for the inter-county manager? I think it is. I think it's, and I think even if you look at club management, Marie, I think there's a difficulty in finding, first of all, candidates for club jobs, and secondly, suitable candidates. And I think that extends very much uh, to inter-county Gaelic games as well. There are not a flood of really good managers and coaches. Certainly, really good managers and coaches that first up live up to players' expectations. I think players' expectations and what they expect from their management team. Uh, is rising all the time and with that expectation comes a lot of pressure on county boards and committees that are tasked with trying to find them to come up with the right solutions that balances everything and you're, you're looking at a balance right across the board but one certainly that meets the expectations and requirements of a group of players and I think people, uh, candidates will, will will shy away from that perhaps Doesn't you know, and you see three there's three Division One teams now have really struggled, have really struggled to find candidates. Obviously, Roscommon are concluding their process this week, but it's been an exhaustive one for them too, and they have approached and spoken to a number of other candidates, and they're down to the last three, and it looks like there is an appointment ready to be uh, put in place for, uh, for, for tomorrow night. So Donegal, the same. It's a real, real challenge uh, that people are not just jumping at these jobs. Maybe... Maybe like they used to, and even last year, Longford and Down. It took took Longford and Down a long time to get their managements in place as well. So this is this is ongoing. Maybe four or five months in their case last year. They and with Donegal, Monaghan, and Roscommon, it's been roughly three or four months. Maybe in Roscommon's case, three months. So it is a difficulty in finding the right candidates, and it's a small pool out there. It most certainly is. Colin, thank you so much for taking our call. Chelsea still leads Salzburg 1-0 in Austria. It's time for a quick break. Yeah, welcome back, Shamrock Rovers. We're crowned champions. Well, they won the league again for the 20th time last night because Derry City and uh, Sligo Rovers ended up in a draw. They will be presented with the trophy on Sunday in Tala Stadium after the Derry City game that kicks off at 7 o'clock. Well, Stephen Bradley did go and speak to the media this morning after uh, the league was concluded. He spoke to Tony O'Donoghue. Let's hear from him. Stephen, three in a row. Sounds good, I'm sure. Um, how does it feel? Yeah, it feels good as well. Um it was one of our targets, obviously, at the start of the year, retain a league, um, do train a row and, and get that second star, um, something that this team will always be uh, associated with. So, uh, fantastic that we've done it. Did you watch it last night, the uh, Sligo Derry game? I didn't. I was at Shells against UCD. Um, I went there, so I wouldn't watch it. And um, But I kept hearing the score. Everyone in talk was, was telling me the score. And what did it feel like eventually to, to get over the line with two games to spare as well? Ah, it's an incredible achievement from the group, considering what we've had to do this year uh, with group stages and, and playing every two games a week three games a week uh, it's an incredible achievement and, and, and to, to do it um, three years in a row is, is extremely difficult as a reason it's not done very often so um, yeah incredible uh, achievement from the players Would you agree that there was a little bit of a, a stutter perhaps because of the European games because of that amount of, of games coming so close together? It's always going to be difficult you're always going to have points where You've uh, played away on a Thursday night, you've not gone home till Friday and you play again on Sunday against a team you've had 10 days to prepare. So 
there's always going to be difficult moments, but I felt the group have stood up to really well. We we know we've had to listen to a lot of noise, and that's fine. That's that comes with the territory. But I think the the players have handled that really well, um, and they, they've always been brilliant at just moving on uh, from the result, and and uh, they've done that really really well this year. There were moments in the season that were really important. I look back even at that Shells game a couple of weeks ago and that, and that late win. What do you see as the the big moments, the the turning points, if you like, in the season? Yeah, I think what you said. I think the Shells game a few weeks back was was really important. Uh, the fact we were two one down um, and we come back and win it in, in the dying seconds um, really swung momentum uh, for us. And, and uh, because we know if, if you're a team that's chasing us and you're looking at that. Um, you obviously want us to lose, and and it's it's coming in the in the dying seconds of the game, and we've we've gone and won it. So I think that was a was a massive turning point. Lincoln City made a very firm approach for, for you, which I'm sure was difficult for you at the time. Yeah, it was a difficult decision um, because I feel uh, I said at the time Lincoln are, are a good club with really good people behind it, and and they have a real plan in place to be successful in their way. So um, it, it was uh, it was flattering to have that interest and. And to speak to, to a club like that, but um, I, I felt we we have work to do here, and, and um, yeah, it just wasn't it just wasn't right at that time. But you've done three in a row, you've won the FAI Cup, and I think that was important before you ended up with your league success. I mean, do you feel perhaps your time is done here? No, um, I think we've got to enjoy the next week, two weeks, and and then plan for how we're gonna. Do four and five, and 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 that has to be the aim. Um, obviously, can't do uh, five without doing four, but um, uh, we need to really focus now when when we enjoy this one and look at how we how we can improve in, in all aspects on the pitch and off the pitch, and and uh, keep being hungry and um, and want to do four and five. That's what that has to be the aim. But from your own point of view, you said you did want to test yourself, perhaps in other leagues and at different competitions. Yeah, I've made no secret that, and, and that still remains the case. Um, but I'm not someone who who jumps at a so-called better opportunity just to jump. Um, if if um, if something that I feel is is right for for everything, um, well then that's something that I look at. But um, yeah, I'm in. I'm in no rush or I won't be, won't be jumping on anything that doesn't, that doesn't feel right. Stephen Bradley there speaking to Tony O'Donoghue um, earlier on today. Shamrock Rovers are the League of Ireland champions for 2022. And Alan, it doesn't feel like that long ago when the Shamrock Rovers fans were unfurling banners trying to get rid of Stephen Bradley. And, and just listening to him there, you can't help but think he deserves so much credit. Yeah, absolutely, Murray. And uh, I would have been critical of them back then as well and a couple of the decisions in particular I remember uh, an incident around goalkeepers and stuff and <laughs> I don't think Stephen was, was too happy with the comments I had to make at the time but I was only calling or it as any a, of the Shamrock Rovers fans well, and them, they weren't happy either yeah. but the, the truth be told is that they went out and got a proper goalkeeper then and then they go on and win mm. leagues and all but I think to be fair to Stephen as well Murray and you look at him now the, the situation where his third league title and I think more so in terms of the way he carries himself now and his development as a manager from back then when obviously he was very young very new to the job he's still very young but I think he's learned over those two three four years because the one thing as well and no one's mentioned this but I've watched it closely over a period of time is 
the way he deals with the media now as well mm -hmm. there was a time when he was young and you could see he was obviously um, inexperienced which he was and he'd give a very blinkered assessment after every match it was all about them and we mm -hmm. and, and no credit to the other team I listened to him now he even said it there in, in an interview I think he did this morning with the lads talking about games that were pivotal in winning the league and one of them he mentioned was the when they beat Derry earlier in the season but he mentioned that Derry were the better team in the first half and I've heard him saying that a few times now and you have to be honest in your assessment as well about the opposition race so I think that's an area where he's improved massively on in his media and dealing with obviously interviews and all sorts of things like that but the management side of things and if you think back as well he was linked with the Lincoln job everybody thought he might go he stuck around uh, he wanted to finish this off get his third league title he's certainly very much on the rise um, and I think as well considering the personal issues that he's having as well at home with his little lad mm -hmm. I think he deserves a huge amount of credit for staying focused and obviously seeing out the job and finishing it and fair play to him I got a bit of a laugh today um, earlier on when he was talking about Alan Manus so Alan Manus is 40 and he's 37 it's yeah. rare enough that you'd be younger than one of your players yeah, and he's six years there now, so it just goes to show how young he was when he got the job, Marie. Um, and, and to be obviously as successful as he as he has been, and obviously the category that he's in now in terms of Jim McLaughlin, Stephen Kenny, managers, the greatest managers we've seen in the league, winning three three in a row as well. So that's the kind of um, as I say the, the the category that he is in now. So he's certainly on the rise, as I say, he's a young manager in terms of maybe aspirations to eventually go across the water. Who knows? Uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people kind of getting in touch about that, but he's. He's in no rush as he said at the moment I still think the next development for them now is the European stuff mm -hmm. obviously the achievement to get into the playoff stages was brilliant in the Euro in the Conference League this year but they haven't made any impact whatsoever but I think that takes time as well Marie because I think you have to be basically winning the league and getting to that stage for year after year before to get to a stage where in terms of revenue to be able to bring in a calibre player that you can compete at the league level and at European level and I think that will come as well but I think that's the next stage for them because they're so dominant here in the league I think they're closing the gap to be fair they deserve a mention as well but three years in a row to be winning the league is a hell of an achievement Well let's talk about teams who can compete in Europe it's nil all between Sevilla and Copenhagen 1-0 to Chelsea versus Salzburg in Austria but Mark Langley joins us on the line Erling Haaland is going back to Borussia Dortmund if Chelsea or Man City win they will top their group with a game to spare Mark Yeah um, they, they will I mean I think um, in terms of that Haaland uh, you know, I think everybody in Dortmund's actually quite excited to see him he left on very good um, terms there haven't been too many opposition fans that have been happy to see Erling Haaland lining up against them but um, you know that Definitely, you know, Dortmund appreciative of what he did for them. You know, goal a game, um, essentially over nearly 90 appearances for them. Um, so it, that's going to be a nice moment for him. And in terms of Chelsea, there, um, you know, playing brilliantly. I think in in Austria, it's the best I've seen them play. Not only under Graham Potter, but even going back really from Thomas Tuchel. A lot of the football under Tuchel wasn't um, the most attractive, but uh, certainly in, in this game against um, Salzburg. Um, Chelsea knocking it around lovely should be more than one goal up and Salzburg's goalkeeper Cohen has made a number of important saves to keep sort of the home team in it but very impressed uh, with Chelsea maybe if they had a Haaland type striker uh, that game would already be over yeah, listen, Alan, Chelsea are playing better without Tuchel. He was going to be a saviour, according to you. <laughs> well, well, he did okay, to be fair, Tom. Yeah. Winning the Champions League. He did League. win the Champions League. I think we made a deal with Alan at the, the very start, Ruby, that we can't remind him of all the... Uh, oh, we the, can. You're <laughs> as brash as your opinions you have to. There's not many, Ruby. There's not many I get wrong, I tell you. <laughs>
Mark, in Group H, Benfica and Juventus are in action at eight, as are PSG and Maccabi Haifa. Um, I cannot look at Erling ha- or at um, Kylian Mbappe now without thinking about that money that he is supposedly going to be getting, 630 million gross salary over three years. Is that accurate? Um, wait, it's always hard to know um, exactly how much. I mean, you know, it's not something that's, that's sort of revealed and broken down. Uh, we know that he is... You know, being paid an absolute fortune by Paris Saint-Germain. Of course, he was going to leave on a free transfer. I mean, how much would it have cost Paris to replace him with somebody as good as Kylian Mbappe? Maybe they felt, um, and, uh, and the, the figures quoted, I would suggest that probably, um, you know, if anything, they're, they're over-exaggerated. They normally um, are um, a, a touch. But, I mean, how much would it have cost PSG to replace Kylian uh, Mbappe? Uh, you're looking at in excess of probably 100 million on a forward and then all the wages that come with it. So, I mean, he'll feel, and this will sound grotesque to some people, he'll feel like he um, is in the sort of, and worth it's probably the wrong word, but um, in, in terms of sort of the market values of players around the world and what some sports people, um, particularly in, say, US sports, um, you know, he'll feel like he is deserving of that money. I mean, the performance that he put in at the weekend with... Lionel Messi was just delightful. We spoke earlier on um, in the season about how unhappy he was with the position he had in the Paris Saint-Germain team. Um, him and Messi uh, played together at the weekend as a front two, but um, sort of sharing that, that burden up front. And the combination play between the two of them was an absolute joy to watch. Again, uh, can't say his value for money at the figures you just quoted there, Marie, but certainly um, you know, he is one of the best players in the world. He was on a free transfer he had interest from Real Madrid and other teams. So um, I suppose market forces would dictate that he would be paid a sort of extraordinary amount of money. I'm not sure if those figures are 100% accurate, but it will certainly be on um, you know, a, a very tidy sum, I think I'm, it's fair to say. I'm going to put you on the spot, Mark. You might not know the answer, and if you don't, that's fine. But his brother Ethan made his UEFA Youth League full debut for PSG earlier on today against um, Maccabi Haifa. Is he any good? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's any good. I, I would, if I was, if I was having a bet now, I would say that he won't be as good as Kylian Mbappe. That's normally, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty safe choice to make. I think it's really interesting though, because uh, if you look at somebody like um, Eden Hazard when he was at Chelsea, um, his brothers were also, and he, he's got one um, very good one, Torgan, but he's also got maybe some others that, that aren't quite at that level, and they were on the books of Chelsea for a while. So. Um, wouldn't be that I'm not going to call it and say that he's going to be terrible or anything like that but there are occasions when um, you know these really big players um, sometimes their siblings are at the club for um, a while anyway I think it's fair to say then you change sport and look at Venus Williams and along came Serena so hey you never know it can be done the big game well not a big game Mark but an important game I suppose for Juventus that take on Benfica they're having a stinking run and Benfica could put them out could they? Yeah, they could. I mean, you know, Juventus not even certain at the moment of qualifying for the Europa League. I mean, it would be, it'd be bad enough if they don't make it through um, to the um, to the Champions League last 16. You know, this is a team that's very much at the forefront of the push to um, get into the, a European Super League. Um, and I think some people are saying they're doing that because they can't beat teams fairly. You know, the Benfica have got a much smaller budget than um uh, outplayed them, completely outplayed them in, in Turin. It's, it's such a one-sided game. They lost in Israel to Maccabi 
Haifa, that the fans want Allegri out. He has changed the formation, gone to a back three. They've won their last couple of matches just to, to calm those calls for him to go. And actually, some of the play, uh, fans have now turned on the players. Angel Di Maria and Paredes, the um, sort of midfielder, both Argentinian, both, according to the Juventus fans, not been putting it in um, this season. Di Maria is out injured at the moment, but as said, he'll be ready for the World Cup. And you know, I mentioned this to Stephen Kelly last week about um, you know would some players be thinking about the World Cup? That's certainly the accusation um, from the uh, from the Juventus fans who are adamant that Di Maria um, is basically putting his feet up. And this is somebody that's on a lot of money. Um, you know, was supposed to become an important player for Juve. Um, when he's been fit, he hasn't done much, and um, it doesn't take much to get him injured, I think it's fair to say, at the moment. And Paredes as well, another one that's probably got one eye on the World Cup at the moment. I think that's what I do if I was playing. I just take it easy and <laughs> no, cruise into the Oh, staying on the game, those, those individuals, Marie. <laughs> OK, we're, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. And sure, maybe the next time we're talking to you, you might know whether Ethan Mbappe <laughs> is any good or not. Uh, we're gonna, I'll do my best. <laughs> please do. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll have more Champions League tomorrow and we will continue to update you on that Chelsea game as well. Back soon. Game on on 2FM. Welcome back. Now, I am delighted to say that we are in that time of year when we get to talk about books. There are so many brilliant ones. And this time we are joined by Owen Doyle, who has written a book called The Referee's Call. So many people will know Owen Doyle from being an Irish Times columnist and also from being an Irish rugby test match referee. And I'm delighted to say that he joins us now in the studio. Owen, you've had a, a brilliant career, a very wide ranging career, but I want to ask you about the refereeing first. How did you get into it? Well, my dream uh, from a very young age was to play for Ireland. And I knew definitely from the age of 10 that I was going to do it and nothing was going to stop me. Um, I had some ups and downs even at that age when I kicked the ball through my father's office window. Uh, and luckily he'd left the room to make a cup of tea because there were shards of glass in the chair and on the blotter uh, where he'd been working. And uh, I mean, I could have killed the poor guy, but I got away with that. But I didn't get away with a serious injury later on and I ended up uh, very upset uh, and I was asked to try refing, And I didn't want to because my opinion of referees was not particularly high at the time. Uh, we'd missed out the double in UCD due to a shocking referee's decision. <laughs> uh, so basically then I decided I would try it and um, I was down in my club old Belvedere one day and they said, would you, the ref hasn't turned up, would you give it a go? And I said, well, I've nothing with me. So they presented me with an old pair of boots and a plastic whistle which was cracked. But I was so delighted to be back on the pitch again, it was terrific. Oh, and there's an interesting part in the book right after that where you tell that story about refing your first game in Old Belvedere where you had a chat with Judge Father Eddie who had been a lazy, liaison officer for Irish teams in the 50s and 60s and dealt with all the referees that came to Ireland around that time and you spoke to him about it. He didn't exactly from reading it inspire you to go and do what you did no but he had a great sense of humour and he said if you expect me to go and watch you making an idiot of yourself he said I'm not going to uh, but it was it was very jocular and he was actually very proud and when I refereed my first uh, senior cup match between St Mary's and Wesley I mean he was there to shake my hand and give me a cuff around the ear uh, of congratulations but no he was there, he was always there for me but he preferred he preferred us all as kids you know to find our own way and to make our own mistakes uh, and there's nothing wrong with the mistake I mean the old saying 
show me a, a referee who hasn't mistake, made a mistake and I'll show you a referee who's refereeing the third C reserves. Well, more like show me a referee, show you a human that hasn't made a mistake. But mistakes are a huge part. And we, you see them on the pitch. You talk about players missing a penalty, missing a free kick and how they have to deal with it. Referees have to deal with mistakes too. How do you deal with them? Do you, just, do you even it up somewhere along the way or do you deal with the mistake? Well, you have to deal with the mistake and it's a bit unfair that if Johnny Sexton misses a uh, kick it from in front of the posts, it's poor Johnny. If a referee does the equivalent, his parents have met once but just very briefly. I mean, I had to invent a way of doing it, uh, getting rid of a mistake because if you start evening up, it's like um, it's like trying to so, uh, even up a three-legged stool with a saw and no tape measure. So you've got to put it out of your mind or the temptation to even up will, co- will come through without you even knowing it. So I used to slam the mistake into the boot of my car uh, and I'd bring that car with me uh, everywhere in my mind and park it outside the ground in Cardiff Arms Park or Park de Prince or wherever. And I think that could work for every referee in every sport. You've got to get rid of your mistake. There's a great uh, part in your book where you're describing the AIL rivalries, particularly the ones in Limerick. And I was lucky enough to be at some of those games when I was young with my dad um, in the 90s and the likes of Gary Owen and Shannon. What was it like being being part of that and, and just seeing firsthand just how much the club rugby game meant to those people? It was absolutely wonderful. I mean, if, if you were to ask me my top three matches that I ever refereed, I would pick Shannon and Gary Owen as one of them on the day that they got 14,500 people into the never developed at that stage Thoman Park. And it was such an atmosphere. There were people sitting on the stand roof. There were people hanging out of trees. And the health and safety officers from the police and the fire brigade came along the next day and set down new regulations because they said it can never happen again. That was actually Keith Woods, uh, for one of his first matches. And he scored a wonderful try. Um, and I think I cover it in the book where the ball went out to who I thought was number 12. Uh, who took a one-handed pass, little dummy, skipped off his left foot, left everybody for dead and crashed over. When he got up, I realised it was number two. It was Keith. And and if for one second I had thought it was him to begin with, I wouldn't have played on. Was he the one player that you thought, that you saw maybe before they made it, that you thought, OK, he's going somewhere? Oh, it was extraordinary. And uh, he had such a wonderful career. And when he became captain of Ireland, Ireland were giving away a lot of penalties so we used to sit down with uh, Eddie O'Sullivan, the coach, and organise how he would manage the referee and which referee uh, took very badly um, to contradiction. And But Keith's soft, Claire accent got him past a lot of stuff. And if he didn't get the penalty change, which he never would, he normally got the next penalty. How are you yourself with players talking to you? Like if you think I remember I played rugby in the 80s you did not speak to the referee how were you with players talking to you? Well if players I was one of the first what I would call accessible referees you know you don't mind if somebody asks you a normal question what, what was that for I, I wasn't quite sure and you'd say look you were clearly offside you clearly need to step back first but any aggression was nipped in the bud very very fast and it was quite difficult for me at the beginning because I was playing with people like Fergus Slattery who I'd played against uh, and he would say, oh, come on, for God's sake, Owen. So we had to come to an agreement that I'd be the referee and he'd be number seven. Uh, and later on in the bar, we resumed normal hostilities. But it was it was good fun. 
Oh, and there's so much conversation at the moment about the um, assaults within different sports, like the incidents in, in GA and soccer and um, violence on sidelines and uh, brawls at games. And people look to rugby and think, well, if we could be a little bit more like rugby, then maybe some of the bad behaviour on sidelines. And even you look at Jurgen Klopp recently and uh, Premier League players, the way they surround rugby. Do you think it's an easy problem to solve when you look at the sport that you were in and look at the, the sports that there are issues? I don't think it's easy to solve because particularly in soccer, it's a culture. And uh, I think the chairman of Liverpool said something along the lines that, well, Jurgen Klopp, maybe he went slightly too far. But the fans expect some reaction to bad refereeing. Uh, now, <clears throat> GAA, it's endemic. Uh, in rugby, it's slipping. And it's very, very sad to see because once it slips, it's very, very hard to pull it back. I mean, Johnny Sexton is a great captain, but when he loses his temper and approaches the referee like that, it's actually counterproductive. Uh, I mean, any um, sports psychologist will tell you that if you get the wrong side of the referee, he won't deliberately be looking for you. <laughs> but something deep down, his inner chimp will be saying Human something nature. to him. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, you'd be surprised to see Bondiaki confront the referee as he did after being sent off for playing for Connacht in South Africa. Yeah, he's he's got to learn to control himself. I mean, he's a brilliant player, but he's he's little used to Ireland if he's serving suspensions. And if you look at what he did, uh, I thought for God's, for one second he's going to manhandle the referee. Uh, and if he had, he's getting very close to referee abuse. Now that carries in rugby, thankfully, massive sanctions. But if he had done that, he could have been gone for a year. He could have been gone, depending on what he did. If the referee had pushed him back and then he'd pushed him back again, it got out of control. I mean, you could be looking at a massive uh, suspension. It would be likewise in, in horse racing if you assaulted or attempted to touch an official. But look, we'll go back, go back to mistakes. I must say, everyone made them and I made so many of them. I like talking about them. Me. But when you go, go back to Paris, 1988, England against France, you, Owen Doyle, made a brilliant interception. Yeah, well, that was one of the great moments of my life. And I could laugh about it now looking back, but it wasn't too funny at the time. Uh, the English centre, Kevin Sims, broke up the left wing and it looked for all intents and purposes that he was going to that he was going to score. And in fact, I thought he had to. And something in my mind clicked. And I think it might have been Clive Norling who said to me, look, Doyle, you're so slow. You never even get there for the action replay. So I decided that I'd hair towards where Sims was going to touch down. He threw an inside pass unexpectedly. And the recipient in the best place to score was me. So when the French pack saw this, well, they, they climbed all over me. And it, well, luckily I wasn't hurt. I was able to climb out from underneath the morass of bodies and uh, awarded a scrum to England, much to their horror. Uh, Mickey Skinner said at the dinner afterwards, the famous uh, English wing forward, he stood up and he said, I want to make an announcement. He said, I did not score a try for England today. He said, Owen Doyle scored a try for England. So I reckon I'm one of the few international referees who's actually scored a try for England but it was pretty it was a pretty miserable evening Oh and you've, you've quite the legacy when you think of all the um, effects that you've had on different facets of refereeing over the years and I was mentioned earlier that my dad was up uh, today and we were sitting down and he was looking through your book and um, he made the point to me to say to you that you know one of the 
the big things that you'll have left behind is that you you set a standard for referees that you you, you changed what's the expectation of what referees should strive to and um, that's a great thing to leave behind I think it is yeah no I agree with you but we were very lucky that we had some fantastic talent there Dave McHugh Alan Lewis Elaine Roland, World Cup final 2007 but they bought into what I was trying to do and I think once you raise the bar like that, everybody goes out and thinks, well, you know, I can do it. And I think when Elaine Roland uh, got his, um, did the World Cup final, he, he said something very wise to a group of referees. He said, you know, you may not get anywhere near but where I got, but don't forget, if you're refereeing the Thirds Cup final, that is their, those players, um, that's their World mm-hmm. Cup final. So treat it like that. And you're as important uh, as I was in Paris that day. I thought that was terribly generous uh, and also correct because it's not the Elaine Rolands who keep the game going. It's all the other referees who go out in the muck uh, and the bad weather uh, with no crowds, a man and his dog, and they do it week in and week out. They're the guys who keep the game going and my hat goes off to them too. Are you worried about refereeing in the future and whether there'll be enough to keep the games going at all levels Yeah I am and I'm hugely worried about the quality of people, I mean the people I've just mentioned from Ireland, they all were part time and they had their own job so if they got dropped they went back to doing that, doing their own job Wayne Barnes for example is a barrister and he's, is, is, and he's by far the best in the world even though he annoys the living daylights out of me <laughs> sometimes <laughs> and, and I think that's a security of having a job whereas others are going to finish at 45 and they're going to be wondering what they're going to do next yeah, it's, it is worrying. And, and even just at the lower levels in terms of recruitment, it just feels like, you know, the names that you mentioned there, they're the ones that people want to be. But the stigma that's attached to being a referee at grassroots level, it seems to be getting, they're getting a lot of flack and it, it seems like a really unattractive thing to do now. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons why rugby has got to make sure it doesn't slip down into the culture of referee ab- abuse. It'll happen in some pitch down in Wexford. Mm with nobody watching the referee gets uh, gets assaulted uh, I, I'm, and I am I am worried about it yes When you look though at, at rugby and it, it comes like all sports from what's happening at, at the top down and you look at the information that referees give through the TMOs through themselves now some will argue the decisions take too long and, and perhaps they do but when you look at why referees explain why every decision takes place it diffuses a lot of heat that could be directed towards referees. Yeah, I think it does, and that's the top level again working very well. But don't forget, Ruby, the top level of professionalism, like for an example in Ireland, is 300 players, six referees, maybe four full-time. Uh, and it's the other parts of the, the game that we have to worry about. I certainly agree. Someone like Wayne Barnes explains his, his mm. decisions. Sometimes, uh, well, all barristers love the sound of their own voice, sometimes far <laughs> too long. But basically he's getting the message across, Yes. Owen, thank you so much for coming in. So The Ref's Call is available in all good bookshops. Um, a great read and you can also be found in the Irish Times as well. Um, some really thought-provoking co- um, columns over the last while, um, particularly when there's so much talking about what is going on um, all around the country with referees. So thank you very much for coming in and best of luck with that. Ruby, that's all we have time for. It is indeed, Marie. Who's up next? Who's up next? Betty De Silva. <laughs> Betty De Silva is up next. We'll talk to you soon. 2FM